super good acting, first of all, right? Like, total Academy Awards there. Well, good morning. It is great to see everybody. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads, and uh, we're in for uh, just a great day today. We've had a great day, some great songs and music, and it is just good to be here. And uh, that clip, though, that image, right, we're in this series on servant leadership, and today I want to talk for a few minutes about servant leadership, particularly in our marriages. And uh, we've been talking about servant leadership as this moment in which we kind of recognize that if we're going to live our lives the way that the creator of the universe has called us to, right, if we're going to live in this pattern of Jesus, which many of us in the room have made that commitment, and many are exploring that, and some are here today because you heard there was free donuts. That's just great. I'm glad you're here. But the idea is when we recognize that leadership looks different, leadership is influence. And Jesus actually said that leadership should be different among you, that those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. And that's what we've been talking about. And today I want to jump in and talk about this idea of servant leadership in our marriages. Now, some of us in the room are single, how many single ladies in the house? All the single ladies. All the single ladies. It's my jam. I can do the whole thing. Don't, do you want to see? All the single ladies. No, I'm just kidding. Don't want to do it. I love it though. That was Micah and I all the time. I was just, and now I just do it by my own because I'm good at it. So uh, how many single men in the house? Can't get tied down. I understand. I understand. Listen, if you're single today, you can just leave. We don't care about you. Uh, you're half of a human being is the truth. But no, listen, if you are single this morning, we're glad you're here because you have relationships, right? It doesn't matter. And, and uh, some of you that are single, you might be called to singleness, which is a wonderful gift. It's a calling that I believe that some are, are called into. And uh, you might be in a relationship headed towards marriage. You might know somebody that's married. And so I always say that, we used to say things in church world like this, we want the message to be relevant. But if I'm talking about marriage and you're not single, how relevant is that to you, <laughs> right? A lot of times I'm like, well, it's not relevant at all. But here's what I shifted a few years ago. I said, my prayer is that the message is insightful because you probably know somebody who's married. How many in the room know somebody who's married? Here we are. Okay, so you might, if you lean in, pick up something today, a principle in particular that might be able, you might be able to serve somebody who's married. You might at some point in time be able to say, oh, you know what? I heard this, some crazy guy one time, I don't remember exactly where it was, but it, I just remember it being kind of weird, said this. And, and you might be able to pick something up and you can walk somebody through a circumstance in their life, right? So we wanna kind of dig into this idea of servant leadership in marriage. And kind of one of the most dysfunctional marriages that, that you could imagine that we've seen on screen was this one, right? If you're familiar with the story of Anakin and Padme, their whole marriage started as a secret. We won't tell anybody. How many of you know if that's how your proposal went, you'd immediately go, hmm, maybe this isn't gonna work, <laughs> We're gonna get married, but you're not gonna tell anybody. It's like, happy Valentine's Day, I love you, but let's keep that on the down low, right? There's something inside of us that says that doesn't work. And, and really, it, it, we see it in this scene at the end of the first three prequel movies to Star Wars where that secret turned into another secret of a baby, which then turns into keeping that secret and losing, I'm gonna lose everything. And so now there's all this secrecy and it turns into paranoia and pain and he ends up basically killing his wife. That's not a happy ending, by the way, right? 
And we see it in this like Star Wars universe, right? And nobody goes into a marriage thinking, you know, let's just see how many secrets we could keep from one another. I think that's a pathway to health. Yet secrets do end up in our relationships. They end up in our marriages. And oftentimes they end our marriages. Well, why is that? Why is it that secrets have a tendency to rear their ugly head? Well, it's because secrets and shame are connected. Secrets and shame are connected. They actually need one another for survival. And shame is this idea that when something bad happens to me or when I do something bad, it's no longer an action that has been invoked upon me or set on me or it's no longer something I've done. It's now who I am. And shame leads to this fear that if you knew the true me, if you knew the reality of my life and my decisions, the things that have happened to me and the things that I have happened to other people... If you knew those things, then you probably wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. So I need to hide from you. And so secrets and shame, they like live together and they just grow. It's kind of like that uh, play Little Shop of Horrors, like Seymour, feed me, right? That's what they do. Secrets feed shame, shame feeds secrets. And keeping secrets at the end of the day just keeps us paranoid, exhausted, and distant from one another. Because what happens is the fear sets in, and here's the fear, they're going to find out. They're going to find out. And all of a sudden in our lives, we're keeping secrets, we're keeping things hidden because we're afraid of what's going to happen if they come out. And then somebody starts to get a little too close, the dark side of leadership kicks in, the dark side of relationships kicks in. We start to control, we start to manipulate, and we have this term for it, gaslighting, right? This idea that I'm, I'm just going to deflect, they don't know anything, what are you talking about? That's crazy, that's silly. And we start to like live this whole second secret life oftentimes. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 actually talks about this. The book of Proverbs, by the way, is a book that was a collection of sayings found in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, if you're new to Bible study. And the book of Proverbs is kind of like a collection of wisdom sayings. It was probably written for people that were in like the middle to upper middle class, probably actually the upper class of society, these sayings that were written. And they're kind of this idea that like, if you have money, these generally work out, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like it's true like it's just if you look at the proverbs there's a lot of proverbs that make a lot of sense if you have resources and you have people around you and a good support system but if you like live in an underclass sometimes the proverbs they don't feel like they make sense so we just should know that that they were compiled by people who lived in kind of a royal court and they do their general principles that this is generally how life works out There's a general truth to them. So Proverbs, I want to say this, and you'll always hear me say this when I talk about Proverbs. Proverbs are not promises, okay? We oftentimes mistake those two. Proverbs are not promises. They are maxims about life. They're wise sayings that generally work out, particularly if you have resources, (laughs) right? If, If we lived in a perfectly just world, right? If we lived in this perfectly world full of shalom or peace, then these would probably become promises. But we don't. We live in a fractured, broken world, so they become general principles. But here's what Proverbs 28, 13 says. says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. Now, let me hit the pause button here before we jump in. Let's talk about that word sin for a second. Okay, so the word sin, if you grew up in church, uh, if you grew up kind of in a faith community, you've heard this word sin, and maybe when you hear sin, you just immediately feel guilty. You don't even know why. 
It just said sin, and you just feel like, pass the offering, I'll give, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'll volunteer, right? We just sin, right? And here's the thing. Sin in its earliest levels, in its most immature way of understanding sin, we reduced it to like moral laws, right? And so sin becomes this list of things you do and these things you don't do. And we think of sin as, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I have the capacity not to do it, yet I chose to do it. Now I crossed the line, I've sinned, and now there's punishment for my sin, right? That's kind of our general way of thinking about sin, especially if you've uh, grown up in the church. And that's what religion does. And there's a good side of that, right? Rules, law, order. It's, very, it's kind of like the sense of politics, right? We need rules and law to keep people functioning together. So it's not a bad thing, but that's really not the biblical idea of sin, now, that might scare you, but it really isn't. When you read like what Paul says about sin in some of his letters in the New Testament, Paul talks about sin as a much bigger concept. The sin is this thing that exists in our world, in our lives, that continues to exert itself on us, and oftentimes we are powerless against it. Right, Jesus actually, when he was like talking and teaching, he talked about, you know, oh, you're so careful to follow the, the, the rules of the law. You're so careful to tithe 10% of even the smallest little like bill and smallest little a measure of oregano. You'll bring that 10% in. But he says the weightier matters of the law you neglect, justice, mercy. Because you can't take justice and mercy and just apply this law to it and then say, oh, I sinned, right? It's weightier, it's bigger. Paul says, why do I do what I don't wanna do and don't do what I wanna do? Oh, what a wretched man am I. It's sin at work in me. That there is this thing that's bigger. And here's how I would like to talk about sin. This is the way I think about it these days because I think it's a little bit more inviting to us and it gets past some of the manipulation that has happened in religion over the years with this concept is that sin is wounding, Sin is wounding. So if I think of sin as something that breaks wholeness, either in me or in my neighbor, that's what sin is. It's a woundedness. Now, how many of you have ever heard the phrase that hurt people hurt people? Right? How many of you have ever lived that one out? <laughs> as the hurt person who's hurt somebody. Let's just get deep. How many of you have done that? Right? I, I shouldn't be raising my hand. How many of you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking, right? So I think of this bigger idea of sin as woundedness, that I go about wounding people. Sometimes I don't even know it. And I'm almost powerless to avoid it because I don't know the triggers in your life. I don't know the things that you've gone through. Like I could come up to you and say, hi, give me a hug. And that wounds you because someone used touch to harm you. And I've fractured, so there is this sin at work in the world, this woundedness that goes about. And here's the thing, what this proverb is saying is that if we conceal the wounds that have happened to us, if we conceal the wounds that we happen upon other people, we're not gonna prosper. And I would think, and let's talk about this language of wounds, is that hidden wounds eventually get infected. If you're a fill in the blank person, you're going nuts right now, there's a double blank. It's like... You're in euphoria right now. I get to put two blanks in, in one sentence. Hidden wounds eventually become infected. How many of y'all know that if you have a wound and you don't deal with it, it's just gonna make it worse? If you just pretend it's just gonna make it worse, right? I went uh, on a hike. I was told it was a hike a few weeks ago. I was climbing a 14er in the middle of the winter. 
Ryan, where are you? You're here somewhere. You're standing up here next to me. Where's Ryan at? Ryan's back there. That's the person we don't like uh, right there. No, Ryan's the guy who got me safely up the mountain. We came back down on this hike that took eight hours. <laughs> and I developed these massive, like I had pictures I thought about showing you, but some of you might vomit in the middle of church. But like, I got these huge blisters on the back of my heels. And I didn't really say anything because I was like, I don't, I'm not going to say anything. Man, he probably had something in his pack that if we would have just taken five seconds, I could have covered up that and I would have been okay. But by the time we were ending, like I could barely walk, right? Because I just, it, I didn't want to admit the fact that I've got these huge, so I'm just, <laughs> this is why it took eight hours right here. <laughs> right? If we just let it go, it, things get infected. And here's the thing, scripture at times calls this infection of wounds, this infection in our lives, spiritual darkness, spiritual darkness. In fact, the writer of this little letter in the New Testament, 1 John, it's written in the name of John the Apostle. It could have been John. We don't really know for sure. It's written certainly in his school of thought and the way in which he encountered Jesus and perhaps the people that he discipled in that way of following Jesus. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, it says this. Now, this is the gospel or the good news that we heard from Jesus, from him, and now we announce to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, right? So if we think of darkness as infection and harm and, and disease and damage, that God is light and there is none of that in God. And first thing I just wanna just, just for a second, just this is so powerful. We could spend really a whole eight weeks on this concept that God is light, but just to take, like light is something we experience. We don't see it, right? We don't see light, but we experience light. We need light. Light helps us out. Some of you came in and you come in from a super bright lobby to a dim slash dark room and it's hard to navigate. It's hard to see. We long for light because light illuminates the truth around us, right? But we don't actually say, oh, I just love light, right? We love what light illuminates. We love what light brings in and it shows us what's around us. And God is so similar to that, that we, we want to focus in on light. Like, oh, let's just talk about how beautiful the light is, but we miss the real beauty of God, which is what God is illuminating all around us. This good creation, these good people, the good humans around us, all that is good, right? And so I just think that's such a powerful thing here that just should reframe our understanding that God is not this thing that sits away from all of us that just needs and longs for us to gather and worship and make sure that God is in a good mood so that we can have a good week. I actually, like God gathers us together so that we might experience God as light, as illuminating God in one another. That's what's so powerful. I'm getting, I love this. We're in a few weeks, we're gonna do a series called Live Curiously. And in that series, we're gonna talk about why we gather. Like the first week is the call to gather, is the gathered church. And you might be surprised, this probably won't surprise you that I have some thoughts on that topic. Uh, and I think a little differently. Like I don't think that we gather because God sits on a throne and needs us to raise our hands and tell God how good God is or else God has a bad week, right? And you don't think that either. Like that's why some of you are like, well, that sounds silly when you say it, but that's, that's kind of what we've been raised in in a certain idea. But because God is light, there's a whole different reason why we come together. It's why this is still important and why we're privileged to be in a time where we can actually gather hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of people together. 
And so I actually kind of revolt a little bit against this idea that, well, we can just gather with six people. I, I agree, that's a wonderful gathering. But we actually have the privilege of coming together and kind of living out something that has been a part of human history forever and ever. And I've just used up time I shouldn't have on that. But that's just a teaser to get excited about. In a few weeks, we're going to launch that, all right? So the writer of John goes on and says this. This is the real hard. He says, if we say we have fellowship, think of the word as fellowship as connection, right? Intimacy with him, God, and yet keep on walking in darkness, keep on walking in our woundedness, hiding it. We're lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, right, God is light. So if we walk in God, if we walk in truth, as Jesus himself, as God himself is light, we have fellowship, this is amazing, with one another. Isn't that, isn't that good? We have fellowship with one another. That we have to walk in God's light, in God's truth, if we're ever going to have connectivity with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And again, you got to remember, this is, this is a passage that, that is making sense of the death and resurrection of Jesus within the context of animal sacrifice. How many of you grew up with animal sacrifice? Yeah, Someone's like barbecues, like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so just, just remember that, right? The principle, though, what we're hearing is that, that spiritual darkness is a compound fracture. It's a compound fracture. It's not just one wound, it's two, right? So if we just jump back to this passage of scripture, right? It says that we have fellowship with one another and we're cleansed from all our sin. So first of all, fellowship with one another is about this relationship, right? And, and spiritual darkness damages this relationship. It destroys intimacy. It destroys my ability to actually connect with you because if I'm not honest about who I am and you're not honest about who you are, what are we really connecting about? We're not connecting at all. It's two lies connecting. Does that make sense? Yes, no? Wrap it up, peace, love, and donuts. Is that what we're doing, right? Okay. Because it is a little strange. Like it's just two lies trying to connect and we're gonna miss, right? The second part, the second fracture is a fracture between us and God, which is, is the experience of God, of light. And, and this word cleanse is kind of a technical word in a, in a culture that was based upon temple where you were allowed into the temple if you were clean, if you hadn't done certain things, if you were spiritually clean and so you had to go through all these things. So what this pastor is saying is that when, you're, when you live in the light, when you live in the truth, you actually stand before God cleansed, not because you didn't do anything right or wrong, but because you're being truthful. You're being honest and you're actually able to be in God's presence because you are in God's presence. But as soon as you start to, as soon as you start to hide those things, hold secrets, you've actually stepped outside of God. And so what happens is we start to avoid truth. We start to avoid God. We start living in a space of guilt. And so that compound fracture sets in. And what do we do when we start to feel this way? Well, we treat it ourselves. And here's how we do it. If we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, in other words, if we say we do not bear the weight, the pain, the hardship of the wound, if we don't have that, then we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what is it, the treatment of choice? What is it that we love to do? Avoid and deny, right? We just deny it. No, no, no. I didn't do anything. I didn't hurt you. My favorite way of denial is this. If what I said hurt you, I am so sorry you took it that way. <laughs> Somebody over here has heard that a lot. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. 
That's like the preach preacher. That's what was said over there. But this is the truth. We just deny it and we avoid it. We avoid what's happened to us. We deny that we've ever happened to anyone. But here's the thing, like avoidance and denial, that's like morphine and a Band-Aid for a gunshot wound. (laughs) Oh, we'll be fine. Morphine's just gonna numb the pain. You're not even gonna know you were shot. The Band-Aid will cover it up. But eventually what's gonna happen, you're gonna bleed out and not even know it. But there is a way in which we can destroy the connection and the power of shame and secrets. There is a way in which we can walk into the light, which is God, and it's this thing called confession. This is what John says. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, meaning he's trustworthy and able. God is trustworthy and able. The light, living in the light, is trustworthy and able to forgive us our sins Heal the woundedness between one another. Think of that. Just retrain your mind. It's healing. Forgiveness is healing. And if you've ever experienced forgiveness, you know this is true. It's a healing that takes place between us and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. What is that healing, that gap, that separation between us? I don't know why I'm doing this. God is not upstairs, by the way. All right, God is present on, but heals us from our mental block, the guilt, the shame that causes us to hide from God, right? But if we continue to say we've not sinned, if we continue to say that I've never wounded or I've never experienced a wound, then we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Man. And see, here's what's so powerful. This idea of confession, we walk into it knowing one very important thing about the God that has created everything, the God that is coursing through this life, sustaining all things, is that God desires mercy. God desires mercy. Some of you, I tricked you, it's not a fill-in. You look down thinking, that feels like a fill-in, but it's not. I mean, you might wanna write that down because it's good, but God desires mercy. He desires mercy in our lives towards one another, And he desires to pour his mercy into us. It's the first step of healing to know that you can come to me. Mercy flows out of understanding. Mercy flows out of understanding. The one who created me, the one who formed me, understands me like no one on this planet. And when you fully understand someone, there's no other possible response but mercy. It's why when you're a parent, and you understand what the cry is of your child, you know that cry, which I never did, I wasn't a good parent, still am not, but some do. You know that cry, you respond mercifully. You're like, shut your mouth, right? I mean, no, we respond mercifully. Oh, they need a hug, they need food, whatever. Because you understand, mercy flows out of understanding. And God understands us perfectly. And when someone understands you perfectly, You get a more merciful response to your fears and your hurts. That's the beauty of mercy. Proverbs 28, 13 finishes, right? If you hide your sin, you won't prosper. But if you confess and turn from them, right? So if I confess, I've been wounded, I am wounding, and say, I'm not gonna let the wounds dictate my future, nor am I gonna continue wounding. I'm gonna do my best to work with people, to trust the Lord, to see God bring healing so that I can stop wounding people and I can start healing. Then 
I will receive mercy. Why? This is, a, this is a constant about God. No matter what religious system or structure you're in, whenever you experience mercy, you're experiencing God. There's no Christian way to be merciful. <laughs> like mercy's mercy is it's, mercy. It's perennial. It covers all of us, right? And so here's the point. Confession shatters the connection between shame and secrets, stripping them of their power. That's confession. Now, what is confession? Does that mean I gotta make an appointment with me? You gotta make an appointment with me? Does that mean like, oh, I just have to go and sit in the confessional booth and I need to confess? There's, there's, there is power in having people that you confess with, but here's what I think confession really is. It's owning our stories of woundedness. It's owning them. It's just owning it. It's happened to me. I have happened to people. I did this. It's a part of my story, but I can do that because I know that God desires mercy, that God knows me. And part of confession is owning it enough to disown it. I'm not gonna let it control me. Sin is gonna break its power. It's the beauty of Jesus that sin loses its authority. The wound loses its authority. You know, there's a, I don't have time to do this, but I'm going to. Listen, there's this idea that the power of sin is that I keep doing it. It's a, it's a reductionism of sin. It, sin controls me. I continue to do it, right? The power of sin is that the wound controls me. The power of sin is that it makes me believe that I'm not loved by God, that I don't have eternal life, that I'm not connected to the one who's sustaining all things. The, the symptom is the website I visit. The symptom is the losing of the temper. Like, but the power is when the wound controls us. And the way to break the power of the wound is to own it. Until you own it, it will own you. Until you own what has happened to you and say, this happened to me, I will not carry any shame over it. I have been healed in the name of Jesus. I can walk in freedom from that. It will own you. Until you own, I made this mistake, I hurt this person, I said this, I bring confession to it, it will own you, it will force you into secrecy, it will force you into shame, it will keep you away from God, a God who is desiring to give you mercy. So what about married life? Real quickly, how you bring this into your married life, and I'm gonna say this super quick and it's not gonna be super easy, okay? And for those of you that are single, like you have a privilege to hear this before you're married, because if you will start some of these things as in the beginning of a relationship, you'll find out very quickly how wounded a person is. Because listen, the measure of which a mercy can be given to you is the measure in which a person has already owned their own wounds. And so if you're in a relationship with someone that cannot be merciful, I wanna tell you the pedal on the left is an important pedal. You know what I'm talking about? Pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. Because I'm gonna tell you something right now. You're gonna spend your whole life wounding. <laughs> I hate to break the news to you. It's just gonna happen because sin is pervasive. Because sin isn't just the fact that you consciously do something. It's the pervasive brokenness in our world. And until we learn mercy through ownership of confessing our own wounds and the wounds of, it, it will be an uphill, uphill battle. So here it is. Confess your love, fears, and failures to your spouse. 
Confession is not always about what you've done wrong, by the way. That's what we think of. Because again, we have this really moralistic law, like punitive way of thinking about it, but it's not. Wounds keep, us, keep, our, keep our feelings secret, keep our fears secret, keep the things that I'm scared of secret. And so I wanna encourage you to confess your love. Somebody write a song about that, right? That's good. Like talk about your love for one another. Confess your love to people. Confess your fears. What are you afraid of happening? Here's why I'm digging my heels in the ground. Because I'm afraid if I'm wrong, this is what's happening. Because I'm afraid. Like, I still believe one of the greatest conversations, one of the greatest internal conversations you'll ever have with yourself is this question. Right now, what am I afraid of? When anger, when anxiety, when distrust, when all that stuff, all those negative things start to creep in, one of the most important questions you can ask is, what am I afraid of? And if you can name it, that's confessing it, and it loses its power. And it'll lose even more power when you can say it out loud. What am I afraid of? So confess those things. Confess your failures. And here's the thing, this is complex. Because when you confess your failures to your spouse, there are lots of people involved. And there is degrees of woundedness based upon our failures. And so I wanna encourage you, like take seriously confession, but also recognize it's complex and you may need to talk with somebody. Say, this has happened in my life. I need to know how to go about confessing this in a healthy, appropriate way. And so I, I just wanna encourage you, don't walk out of here and go, oh, well, you know what? I'm gonna just go confess my deepest, darkest secret to my spouse because there's trauma in the confession. You, you will, there will be trauma involved. And so sometimes you need to navigate that with a wise counselor, with a person beforehand, say, I need to work through this. Second thing I wanna encourage you is understand marriage is a mutual calling, not just a mutual commitment. The way in which our world oftentimes thinks about marriage, it's just, I'm gonna commit to you until I'm not happy about this commitment anymore. But I think that a, a, a Jesus-centered marriage, a marriage that's centered on this idea of God and faith says that I'm actually called into this by the creator of the universe to be a part of your formation. And so I'm committing myself to you and what God wants to do in your life for the rest of your life. I've been married for 22 years to the same person with the same name, but I've been married to five different people during that time. You know what I'm saying? You have too. If you've been married longer than four, five, six years, you just change. You, your habits change, your personality changes, your likes and your dislikes change. Some of that's just the nature of it, right? Like I'm 42, I can't do the things I could do when I was 21, right? I mean, it, it, so there's just, there's part of it. And, and, if, and, and, and if I don't recognize that I'm called to love Wendy in every edition that I am given, here's what will come out of my mouth. We just fell out of love. Because guess what? You do. <laughs> you do. Because the person I am married to today is not the person I married 22 years ago. Same name, same face. Yeah. 
It's not good, it's not bad, it just is. But my calling is to not stay in love, but to fall in love with the gift that God has given me in every iteration. And to walk with her and be a support system for her and her to do that for me as well. And so this idea that I'm gonna marry somebody and stay married to that person for 50, 60, 70 years and not recognize that that person's gonna change and I'm gonna change, it, it, it ends in a very bad space. So it's a calling. I believe that deeply. And then finally, just remember that actions harm relationships, not the truth. We wanna blame the truth. Oh, if I told them this, it would destroy them. No, no, no. <laughs> if it destroys them, which it probably would, and people are pretty resilient, it might destroy your relationship. There are things that happen that produce so much trauma that this side of eternity you can't backpedal from. Does it mean you can't be forgiven? But it does mean that there is the nature of sin that's pervasive and consequences of our actions. But when that happens, it's actions, it's not truth. It's not light. Light doesn't destroy things, light illuminates. And so just remember that. You're holding on to something that you feel like, I don't know if I should, because it'll destroy them, it'll hurt them so badly. Listen, it's not the truth that will hurt them. And there's a wound there that will eventually turn gangrenous, <laughs> that will eventually bring destruction. And so here's the thing that's so cool about this though. If we'll walk through this difficulty, if we'll bring confession into our lives, it will fill our marriages with trust and intimacy. And trust and intimacy are the pesticides to secrets and shame. They just can't exist. They shrivel up and die. The more I trust my spouse, my partner, the less secrets and shame there are. The more intimate we are with one another, understanding us deeply, the stronger we are. Band's gonna come out and gonna give you a few minutes here to just consider what God is inviting you into today. Perhaps God is inviting you to trust your spouse with confession. Maybe you need to share a fear. Maybe you need to share your love. Maybe you need to be vulnerable and express your need for your spouse. Maybe you need to share something you don't understand about your spouse. I am trying to understand. <laughs> but come with a loving and gracious and humble heart and say, this is where I'm struggling Maybe there's a failure that you need to have a conversation with a friend about and then engage in that conversation. You need to get a wise counsel. And maybe you're here today and you've never understood that God is desiring mercy in your life, that God understands the reason why you've done everything that you have ever done. And he says, come on, kid, come on, come talk to me, come talk to me. Come, let's reason together. Let's walk through this. I'm here to walk with you. I am not here to punish you. I am here to see you redeemed. I'm here to help you understand yourself, which is gonna help you understand others, which is gonna cause you to become more like me, merciful. That's this God that says, come on home. Come on home. And if confession in your mind from whatever weird thing you saw on TV or religious structure you grew up with was about just saying, here's what I didn't do. I didn't go to church and I looked at this and I said this. And it's just so that God will not strike you and smite you. I just reject that in your life right now. And I invite you to take on a better understanding of confession as running into a loving heavenly father that says, come on, let's talk. I desire for you to know who you are, for you to understand what's behind those things that 
that have separated you from me and to know that they don't have to anymore. And so maybe this week, God's inviting you to just spend some time in confession with God and realizing that you don't need to be forgiven because you are forgiven. That's the beauty of confession. It brings us into the truth of who we are, that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we have meaning and purpose and calling, and we can start to walk in that eternal life right now. That's the beauty of confession. So just consider as you finish filling out your Connect card, get your offering envelope ready, we'll get out of here in a moment, that it's the goodness of God that calls us into repentance. Maybe you've heard that passage. It's the goodness of God that draws us in, that invites us into his mercy, that we might give that same mercy, that we might be so formed into the image of God that we can see past the things that people do to understand why it's happening and give mercy. The goodness of God 